0: Hello, everyone. And now, the rest of the story of the three Marys and those of their group who were set adrift upon the Mediterranean Sea, according to legend, to become the first followers of Christ to share his teachings in what then was a very Romanized and pagan southern France in and around Marseille. This episode explores the legend of Mary Magdalene, her legend as it is told in many forms in southern France, and the frenzied search for the Holy Grail in the 20th century by Nazi archaeologists. If it all sounds strange, well, it is, because it is almost all based upon legend. When did Christianity reach Europe from the Holy Land? Who brought it? According to a 2010 Pew Research study, 76.2% of the European population identify themselves as Christians. They are divided into Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, but their beliefs all spring from the teachings of Jesus. If you picture the south coast of France in your mind's eye, you'll see Marseille just about centered along France's southern coast on the Balearic Sea, which is an extension of the Mediterranean, if you will, with Cannes and Nice along the coast to the northeast, and then Nîmes, Béziers, and Narbonne hugging the coast as it curves westward and northward, and then south again toward the border of Spain. After about a four-hour drive, as you head south and west along the coast from Marseille, you reach Narbonne and turn inward toward Mount Segur in the northern reaches of the Pyrenees. It is here at this ancient mountain fortress and castle that a Gnostic group called the Cathars, who, according to legend, had adopted Mary Magdalene's teachings, made their last stand, and where much of the latter part of this story takes place, Much of Mary Magdalene's story is centered around Marseille, with the work and teaching life of she and fellow outcast Maximin, resulting years later in a great church in Aix-de-Provence, Aix spelled A-I-X, you'll hear it a lot in this story, and a holy site, the Cave Grotto at Le Saint-Balm, about 15 miles east of Marseille, where some of her remains, believers say, have been found and are on display. And what a legend and story this is! now that it has all come together. Our fans may remember that we started Part 1 about a year ago, leaving it with a promise to someday do Part 2, and finally, here we are. For those of you who are deeply religious, please keep in mind that I am just trying to share a legend. My pronunciations and my place names aren't always perfect. My French is certainly far from perfect. All I ask is please don't write a bad review for the entire show because you don't like the way I pronounce a word or that you disagree with a fact or idea or that I might accidentally insult your beliefs. If that is the case, just start your own podcast so you can do it better and then quietly go your own way. Those of you who do enjoy our episodes are encouraged to say something positive. In Part 1, The Three Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary Salome, and Mary Cleopas, Are cast adrift with a boatload of faithfuls and survive to spread the Gnostic Gospel in France and Europe. In part two of this episode, we try to follow the mysterious path of the Holy Grail, which some say Mary had possession of, according to legend, and had brought from Palestine, and which has been surrounded in legend and mystery ever since. After Mary Magdalene's life of teaching what we assume to be the Gnostic Gospel and her death in seclusion in France, as legend goes, a religious sect called the Cathars, who practiced the Gnostic gospel that Mary Magdalene brought to that region, built a mountain fortress to protect themselves from invaders, and to protect the holiest of holy artifacts, the Holy Grail, or possibly the chalice, which Mary carried with scented oil in it, the chalice which she used to anoint Christ's body when it was placed in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. 350 years after Mary and others began the spread of Christianity in Europe, Rome became Christianized and adopted their own strict code of religion. With the rise of Catholicism throughout the Middle Ages came the destruction of any religious sects that opposed the teachings of Catholicism. And the light of knowledge shining from the mountain peaks of Montségur, the fortress of the Cathars, in the Pyrenees Mountains, 380 kilometers from Marseille, was a target for warring Catholics who swore to put all inhabitants of the castle to the torch along with any precious relics that were rumored to be in the possession of the Cathars. Thanks to research done by German author Otto Rahm, who, before his untimely death in the Tyrolean Alps, believed and pursued the legend of the Cathars and the Holy Grail in the late 1930s, the German Nazi war machine, and to some degree historians, became very interested in the fate of the Cathars and of the Holy Grail, and the well-known Nazi Himmler, who was Hitler's self-appointed chief archaeologist, became intent upon finding it. His fedora-wearing real character, they say, was later adopted into the script for Indiana Jones in the Lost Temple of Doom. Otto Rahm's story, yet another part of this story to come. His book, Crusade Against the Grail, has been translated and is available free at archive.org forward slash Against The Mountain Fortress of Monsegur, honeycombed with secret tunnels and home for twelve centuries to the Cathars who believed themselves to be the apostolic keepers of the Gnostic faith taught by Mary and Jesus was the unrelenting target of the Catholic armies in the days when all heretics were put to the sword or burned alive and it was the place where those same armies put 20,000 men, women and children to death for believing that Roman enforced Catholicism wasn't the way. All to follow in this second half of the Legend of the Three Marys. As we discussed in Part 1 with the discovery of the Gnostic Gospels found in Nag Hammadi, a new perspective on the role of Mary Magdalene in the revelation and dissemination of the implied true teachings of Christ has emerged onto the public stage. The release of the Da Vinci Code and her story within it, which portrayed her as having a much closer relationship with Jesus than Bible perspective gives us, placed Mary Magdalene firmly in the public consciousness her story awakening both excitement and controversy. Controversy aside, there are many who believe that Mary was the first and chief disciple of Jesus. Some believe she was the wife of Jesus and that they had a daughter. Many believe that she carried the Holy Grail with her to France, the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper and into which Jesus' last drops of blood were captured by Joseph of Arimathea. All legend and all very interesting. On the shores of the Mediterranean Sea outside Marseille, at La Sainte marie de la mer where we opened our story in Part 1, there is a small chapel dedicated to Mary Magdalene and consecrated by Archbishop Roncalli, who later became Pope John XIII. Given a place of prominence within this chapel are paintings of her arrival from Palestine in a small, rudderless boat. According to legend, soon after the Crucifixion and Resurrection, as we related in Part 1, Mary Magdalene and her family and close-knit believers were expelled from the Holy Land, set adrift on the Mediterranean Sea, and made their way to this region, particularly the area around southern France and northern Spain. At this time in history, aside from the already established Celts, many Greeks, Arabs, Jews, and others lived and traveled in this area. There was even a Jewish city known as Glanum Levi, whose ruins can be found today in Provence. Who started this legend? What happened to the castaways on the rudderless boat once they reached France? What were their fates? Who was on board that boat? And what became of them? The Acts of the Apostles describes the days and weeks after the crucifixion. Jesus was dead, and the apostles and his closest companions were stunned. What was the next step? Where the Acts leaves off, legend takes over. According to an old story called The Golden Legend, the stoning of the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen, was the writing on the wall. The followers of Jesus were in danger. They had to leave Palestine. According to the 13th century Italian chronicler Jacob Vorgini, the author of The Golden Legend, a handful took to the sea in a rudderless raft, later translated as a reddo. The passengers included the three Marys, all present at Christ's crucifixion, and preparation in the tomb, including Mary Magdalene, her servant Martia, Mary Salome, and Mary the mother of James, then Lazarus, who Jesus had brought back from the dead, Martha the sister of Lazarus, and Sarah described as a dark Egyptian servant, and others whom we will cover in a few minutes. And The legend also tells us that Mary Magdalene was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, so many family ties here. In that story, the basis of part one, they were carried without rudder or oars, guided by the hand of God through the perilous seas until they landed at a place named Ratis, near Marseille in France. At Ratis, near Marseille, they took refuge under the porch of a temple of the people of that country. What Borogini does not say is that it was a temple to three goddesses. The people in that era saw these people as outcasts and they were preaching something very different from what they knew. They were not taken into homes, instead literally having to camp under the steps of a Roman-built temple. Ratis, later renamed Le Saint-Marie de la Mer, became the cradle of Christianity in France. The authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail introduced the world to the importance of that seemingly unimportant town of René-le-Château, not far from Ratis. The town where a certain father, Berenger Sonier would go from impoverished priests to a millionaire in a few short years because of secrets and supposed gold that he had uncovered. The town was known alternately as Red Eye and Razès. It was in the center of a kingdom once known as Septimania, where a king of the Jews was said to live. It was that one of the three Marys, Mary Magdalene, had carried the child of Jesus. Heirs of that child then became a dynasty in hiding with a bloodline to David. The golden legend of Orogeny tells us that in the year 40 A.D., a boat was launched from Jerusalem without sails, oars, or supplies and drifted across the Mediterranean until it came ashore at this site. In the story, he says, Mary and the others destroyed the temples of the idols in the city of Marseille and built churches to Christ on those sites. The refugees in the boat were Mary Jacobi, the mother of James and the sister of the Virgin, Mary Salome the mother of the apostles James and John, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary Magdalene and Martha, St. Maximinus, Sidonius, who was born blind and cured, and Sarah, the servant of the two Marys, who was also on the boat. St. Maximinus of Aix was the legendary first bishop of Aix and Provence in the first century. According to his legend, he was the steward of the family at Bethany and one of the 72 disciples of Jesus he accompanied Lazarus, Martha, and Mary on their flight. He began the evangelization of of Aix-de-Provence, together with Mary Magdalene. He is traditionally named as the builder of the first church on the site of the present Aix Cathedral. This church was on an old Roman road in southern France, atop of an old Roman temple dedicated to Apollo. It was said to originally be the keeper of Mary Magdalene's sarcophagus, which is found in the writings of Pope Boniface VI in 1295 but her remains were removed to a hidden location nearby prior to the monastery's destruction by Muslims attacking from Arabia in 710. It was rebuilt and still stands today. Mary Magdalene, with the watchful help of Maximin, later withdrew to the solitude of a cave which later became a Christian pilgrimage site called St. Baum. On the day she knew she was to die, she descended into the plain so that Maximin could give her communion at a ranger burial. Her sarcophagus is now at Baume, along with that of Sidonius, Marcel, Suzanne, and Maximinus, after whom the place was subsequently named. Margaret Starbird had made a great study of medieval grail legends in the south of France and concluded that they contain some underground knowledge that has been suppressed. She wrote, It has been suggested that if one breaks the word Graal, Old French for Holy Grail, The result is sang-ral, which in Old French means blood royal, she writes. I have no way to prove beyond a doubt that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus or that she bore a child of his bloodline. But it is possible, she wrote, that belief in this version of the Christian story was widespread in Europe during the Dark and Middle Ages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. Try it. You'll like it. Christian legends abound in France. Legends of Saint Bernadette and the healing waters of Lourdes. As well as the mystery of Father Saunier. A mystery claiming that Father Saunier had discovered proof of the marriage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. A mystery very likely created in fiction. Then there was René Le Chateau. His castle keep where he supposedly found that proof and a pile of gold and his strange chapel dedicated to Mary Magdalene. Then there is the saga of Otto Rahn, searching through the hills and valleys of this region, for the Nazis, trying to find the Holy Grail for the upper echelon of the SS. Otto Wilhelm Rahn was a German writer, medievalist, and an officer of the SS and researcher into the Grail myths. He was born in Michelstadt, Germany, and died in the mountains of Tyrol in Austria. From an early age, Ron became interested in the legends of Parseval, the Holy Grail, Lohengrin, Lohengrin being a knight in Arthurian German literature who was the king of the Holy Grail, and the Nibelungenlied, an epic poem-style story that many called the German Iliad, full of drama, heroines, and heroes. While attending the University of Geisen, he was inspired by his professor, Baron von Gall, to study the Albigensian, also called the Catharism Movement, and the massacre that occurred at Montségur. In 1931, he traveled to the Pyrenees region of southern France, where he conducted most of his research. Aided by the French mystic and historian Antonin Gadal, Ron argued that there was a direct link between Wolfram von Eskenbach's Parzival and the Cathar Grail mystery. He believed that the Cathars held the answer to this sacred mystery, and that the keys to their secrets lay somewhere beneath the mountain peak where the fortress of Monsegur remains, the last Cathar fortress to fall during the Albigensian Crusade. Ron wrote two books linking Monsegur and Cathars with the Holy Grail. One was Crusade Against the Grail in 1933, and then there was Lucifer's Court in 1937. After the publication of his first book, Ron's work came to the attention of Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, who was fascinated by the occult and had already initiated research in the south of France. Ron joined his staff as a junior non-commissioned officer and became a full member of the SS in 1936, achieving the rank of Obersturmfuhrer. It was an uneasy partnership for Otto Ron. Later he explained his SS membership to friends in the following way. A man has to eat! What was I supposed to do? Turn Himmler down? Journeys for his second book led Ron to places in Germany, France, Italy, and Iceland. Openly homosexual, frequenting anti-Nazi circles, and having fallen out of favor with the Nazi leadership, Ron was assigned guard duty at the Dachau concentration camp in 1937 as punishment for a drunken homosexual scrape. He resigned from the SS in 1939 but the SS would not allow anyone to resign without consequences. Soon, Ron found out that Gestapo was after him, and he was even offered the option of committing suicide. Instead, he vanished. On March 13, 1939, nearly on the anniversary of the fall of Montségur, Ron was found frozen to death on a mountainside near Seoul, Kufstein, Tyrol, in Austria. His death was officially ruled a suicide. There are the legends of the secret alchemists who live in a magical castle somewhere in the Pyrenees, a story recently popularized in the Harry Potter series. Finally, emerging from this region is the mystery of the alchemical cross of Hendai, the prophetic visions of Nostradamus, and the Basque legend that John of the Apocalypse still lives in a cave in the Pyrenees and will leave that cave only at the end of time. And the hits just keep coming from that area. You can say about that area of France, Where there's smoke, there's fire, but many places still claim ownership of the Mary Magdalene legend. Back to the Cathars. Catharsis. I've long known of the word and occasionally used it in conversation, but I never knew what the origin was. It's Greek, and the simple meaning is a change or cleansing. The Cathars of southern France had, according to legend, taken what they had learned from Mary Magdalene and no doubt Maximinus and from those Gnostic teachings formed their own form of religion. When you research it, you realize it's a stretch from the Christianity we practice today. Some examples? They didn't believe in marriage. They didn't believe literally in the Bible. They didn't believe that the cross had any special significance at all. They did consider women to be equals. They challenged the authority of the Catholic Church. They did believe in reincarnation and that each reincarnation was a process that moved you closer to heaven, provided you could renounce the temptations of pleasure on earth. The perfecti were those Cathars who had renounced the world. They were the priests and the bishops of the Cathars. The credents were the rest of us, working our way up the ladder. Then there were the sympathizers. Those were non-believers who gave them support. Almost everything known about the Cathars comes from the confessions of heretics taken by the Catholic clergy during the Inquisition, which followed the Albigensian Crusade, which killed off nearly every living Cathar. The Orthodox view of the Catholic Church was that there was one God with three aspects, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. But this orthodoxy was not part of the vision of early Christianity, and was not generally accepted until after the Council of Nicaea in 325. Convened by Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, who ruled in favor of it. Even then, the Nicene interpretation of Christianity vied with others for centuries. The so-called heretical movements of the Middle Ages, such as the Bogomils, the Cathars, and the Waldensians, were simply the latest challenges to the Church, but they were significant because they were the first to set themselves up as a legitimate alternative to Catholicism in any form. The Cathars, therefore, repudiated the symbol of the cross and a literal reading of any of the biblical books. They considered the cross a symbol of Rex Mundi and believed it should be destroyed when encountered as it was a representation of evil. The cross, they claimed, was nothing more than a symbol of worldly power and all the sacraments of the church, including infant baptism and communion, were likewise rejected by the Cathars. Cathars who were not celibate practiced birth control and abortion, believing that sex was a natural aspect of the human condition and could be engaged in for pleasure, not only for procreation. In fact, procreation was discouraged. Women were valued as men's equals and female figures from the Bible were highlighted, especially Mary Magdalene and the Virgin Mary. Some scholars have suggested, in fact, that the growth of the cult of the Virgin Mary in medieval Europe, which became an increasingly popular and influential movement, was encouraged, by the Cathars' elevation of womanhood. They lived in communities which varied in size from sixty to six hundred individuals. They shared their possessions and took care of each other as a family. The faith gained a strong foothold in Italy and southern France through its appeal to the peasantry. Scholar Martin Erbstosser notes how it was the life of the perfecti rather than the teachings of the heretics which played the key part here. The perfecti lived such blameless lives and were so eager to be of assistance to others. They inspired devoted followers. The faith did not remain restricted to the peasantry for long, but spread up the medieval hierarchy to artisans like weavers and potters, writers and poets, merchants and business owners, members of the Catholic clergy, and finally nobility. Eleanor of Aquitaine and her daughter Marie de Champagne were both associated with the Cathars as sympathizers. The Cathars dressed simply in dark robes with hoods or hats, went about barefoot, and the men were unshaven with long beards. They appear in small numbers in records from the 1140s in France, but by 1167 there were enough communities in the region to require an assembly to set rules and boundaries. The Council of St. Felix of 1167 organized the Cathar communities into bishoprics, each with a presiding bishop who was responsible only to his own flock. There was no central authority like the Pope in Rome. By the late 12th century, Catharism was winning more adherents than ever. Papal legates had been sent to southern France to try to win the heretics back to orthodoxy, and councils had been called to discuss the problem. But none of these efforts had made any headway. In 1208, Pope Innocent III sent the lawyer monk Pierre de Castelnau to southern France to enlist the aid of Raymond VI, Count of Toulouse, in suppressing the heresy. Raymond was not only an ardent protector and supporter of the Cathars, but also the bishop of the order in Toulouse. He refused to cooperate with the Pope's legate and sent him away. Castelnau was later found murdered. Pope Innocent then called for a crusade against southern France, promising the nobles of the north that they could keep all the rich lands and booty of their southern neighbors after the Cathars had been killed and their supporters crushed. The northern nobles were only too happy to comply with the Pope's holy wishes, and the Albigensian Crusade was launched in 1209. Since the majority of the Cathars were women, it was mainly women and children who were massacred in the crusade but often whole towns went up in flames and all the citizenry killed. At the siege-turned massacre of the town of Beziers, when Arnaud Amory, the Cistercian monk commanding the church's forces, was asked how to tell the difference between a heretic and a believer, he said, "'Kill them all. The Lord knows who are his.'" According to church documents, 20,000 heretics were slaughtered in and around Beziers, and the town torched to the ground. After 1209 and the sack of Carcassonne, the Earl Simon de Montfort led the crusade which continued the destruction of the region, while enriching the northern barons who participated. By 1229, the official crusade was over, but the Cathars were still persecuted and northern armies continued to sack villages and murder innocent people. Between May of 1243 and In March of 1244, the Cathar stronghold of Montségur held against the siege, but was finally taken, the last stand, and the last Cathar defense fell. In the massacre that followed, two hundred perfecti were burned alive on a large pyre. According to scholars Bryson and Mouzesian, the Crusades destroyed the open, tolerant culture of southern France, replacing it with the rigid dark and narrow-minded culture of the medieval church but did nothing to stamp out Catharism itself. The Cathars who survived the purge of the early 13th century continued to live as they had before only with greater care and secrecy. The survival of these communities is known through the church records of inquisitions which continued on through the 14th century. They would torture Cathar survivors and get every name of anyone who had befriended them, friend or family, and then go and murder them. Many tourists visit Mount Montségur today. It's an awesome spectacle, and the steep climb is for some intimidating. Green hills dotted with old stone cottage ruins that once were the home of Cathars dot the landscape. In the distance, you can see the Pyrenees. The Cathars at one time included a sizable portion of the population of Languedoc, among them many noble families and courts. They also lived in concentrations in Germany, northern France, and northern Italy. So the Catholic Church had to spend about two centuries trying to find them and wipe them out. Much of the fringe interest in Montsegur stems from the popular legend that just days before the fall of the fortress, a small band of believers managed to slip through the besiegers' lines in the dead of night, carrying a mysterious treasure with them. The brochures in the village nearby all refer to this legend. The nature and fate of this treasure has never been established, although much speculation has focused on the Holy Grail. This isn't surprising, since many scholars have nominated Monsegur as the Holy Grail Castle. In Wolfram von Eschenbach's epic poem, Parzival, the linguistic correlations are intriguing. His grail castle is called Mont Silvat, which is similar to Montségur and has the same meaning, safe mountain. The book Crusade Against the Grail by Otto Rahn, which we just spoke of earlier, did much to rekindle interest in the connection between Catharism and the Holy Grail and painted Parzival as a veiled account of the Cathars the Catholic Inquisition left a scar upon southern France that will never be forgotten. At one point, the doors of the Church of St. Mary Magdalene were broken down, and 7,000 refugees, including women and children, were slaughtered. Elsewhere in the town, many more thousands were killed or tortured. Many were blinded, dragged behind horses, or used for target practice. What remained of the city was raised by fire. Arnaud wrote to the Pope, Today, Your Holiness, 20,000 heretics were put to the sword. Today, most of our knowledge of the Cathars is derived from their opponents, the Catholics, their original writings having been destroyed by order of the papacy. Consequently, we have only a partial view of their beliefs. Cathar ideology continues to be debated, with academics often accusing their opponents of speculation or distortion. Getting back to Mary Magdalene, in 1279, Prince Charles II of Salerno, nephew of King Louis XIV of France, resolved to find the tomb of Mary Magdalene, which was thought to be hidden at the church of Saint Maximum at Aix, north of Marseille. Workers began to excavate all around and beneath the church of Saint Maximin. The prince even joined in the digging, and they did find a crypt that dated back to Mary's time, The crypt was filled with earth and sand in an obvious attempt to hide something. And on December 9, 1279, they found that something, the sarcophagus tomb of Sidonius, the one into which the holy remains of Mary had been placed, prior to the monks fleeing from the Saracens in 710. Before they were able to open it, what was described as a most marvelous fragrance rose up from the tomb. The prince halted the work until December 18th, when the archbishops of Arles and of Aix came, and in the name of the church, opened the tomb. The body was found to be complete, except for a jawbone. Among the dust particles at the bottom of the tomb, a small piece of cork was found. Inside was a message written in parchment. It read, Year of the Nativity, Lord, 710, this sixth day of the month of December under the reign of, not legible, and during the ravages of the Saracen nation, in fear of the Saracens, the body of the well-loved and venerable Mary Magdalene has been transferred to be better concealed from the alabaster tomb to the one in marble out of which the body of Sidonius has been removed. St. Sidonius was the bishop of Alverne who had died in the 5th century. The prince, now overjoyed at his find, also discovered a small ball of wax from the tomb that contained a small note written in Latin. It read, translated from Latin, Here lies the body of Mary Magdalene. The cave grotto where she had spent the last years of her life had been converted into a large chapel. The Basilica of St. Mary Magdalene in Veselae continues to be one of the great pilgrimage locations for believers. Although her name is never found on the lists of disciples, her importance to the early growth of Christianity is incalculable. Whether it is fact or legend that Mary Magdalene actually came to this area is less important than the power and impact her life and teachings had upon the people of France. It is obvious to anyone who opens their eyes to see that early in the history of this grace-filled tradition, Mary Magdalene, Apostle of the Apostles, entered and has remained forever in the heart of Christianity. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we ask that you share our show with a friend and encourage new subscribers. Also, nice reviews would be appreciated. Thank you very much for listening. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.